You're listening to Zeigler Group's Legal Zeitgeist podcast, the funds law podcast series that helps asset management firms reevaluate and revolutionize their current approach to investment funds law with the latest technology, legal and regulatory compliance insights, and best practices. Welcome. To, my name is Kunal Grover. I'm head of business development at Zeidler Group. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Vanten, who heads up the Legal Services Division at Zeidler Group. Vanten, welcome. Thank you for taking out the time. I know you're a busy man. No worries at all. So we have got a very interesting topic for today. And I know that this topic caused a bit of a stir when it first was sort of came across our radars. And the topic is AIFMD2. It's sort of maybe died down a little bit, but we recently got some clarifications amongst all the different regulatory updates. So we thought it'd be a good time to talk about it and see what the amendments are, what the impacts might be for managers and any other thoughts that you might have. Perhaps a good place would be to start with try and summarize uh, for our listeners mm-hmm. what the key amendments are to AIFMD that are being being basically pushed through AIFMD2. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for that. In fact, I might just say a few words on timeline first because, you know, it's been a while since um, the sort of EU Commission has been discussing this as a trilogue effectively with, with the Council and the Parliament. And it's been at least two years that, you know, it's been on the radar and, you know, subject to sort of political and legal discussion, I might say. But it's now come to hopefully to a near end in a sense that, you know, if our listeners remember, there was an agreement that was reached back in July, like a kind of a provisional political agreement between those uh, those EU bodies um, on on the texts uh, of the of the future amendments, um, and then very recently, uh, early November, there was um, you know the, the the final compromise test, as we call it, for uh, AFMD 2.0. It basically means that it's kind of almost final in the sense that it's just uh, to be uh, voted at the Parliament. So now the, the EU Parliament has set an indicative date uh, for a plenary sitting, which is supposed to be on the fifth of February, two thousand twenty-four. Which means that if everything you know happens uh, planned, then it will be published in the official journal sometime in February or March. But then again, countries will likely have about uh, 18, 24 months to implement the directive. So we're not talking about anything really being effective pretty soon, but more likely towards Q1 of 2026, I expect. So it's been quite a, a number of different discussions, especially because obviously as often with major texts like this one, EU member states have different political agendas, of course. Like, I don't mean to, to, to be a bit of a simplification or caricature, but effectively Luxembourg and Ireland being obviously big, very big sort of uh, industry centers for asset management, obviously looking to protect their industry. Uh, other countries, perhaps such as France or Germany, still thinking in a sort of post-Brexit mode and trying to attract some business over there. So it's, you know, it's been quite heated in terms of, um, you know, certain subjects, which I'll come to in a minute. And just generally, I mean, also the cultural aspect, you know, some, some countries just having different approach to certain subjects, which is fine. I mean, that's how as well you come to good texts just by, by this sort of, uh, trilogues, as it were, and sort of discussions between um, different uh, member states, different entities at the uh, EU level. Having said the scene a little bit was, was the timeline. What effectively is AFMD 2.0? I mean, what, what, what's, uh, what's in there for, for us? I mean, for, for asset managers, I, I, I'll try and, and sort of regroup that in, into buckets uh, of, of different thematic sort of changes. I've sort of prepared three, which I consider to be the three main buckets. There's obviously more changes to this, but you know, I, I thought that I would highlight those buckets today. 
And the first being delegation and reporting. Uh, there's a number of changes on, on that front. The second being liquidity management tools. And the third one being on loan originating funds. Um, and we'll explain in a minute what, what, what that means. There's obviously, as I said, a few more changes, but um, and I'll, maybe I'll touch on them briefly after. But I thought I'd just uh, highlight those today for our listeners because they, uh, they're, they're going to be quite you know, impactful. And one thing I would say as well, just as, as a side note, is, of course, we're talking about amendments to AFMD, and it's been sort of nicknamed AFMD 2.0. But interestingly, there's also a few provisions in there that are going to impact usage management companies as well, because they um, one of the uh, lesser known Filesh, you know, aspect of that, of that particular proposal text is, is that um, there's a whole sort of harmonization efforts between sort of AFMD and, and UCs being made here. So it, 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 it's quite interesting because tested some of these usage uh, rules for now maybe about 10 years and some of them have been deemed to be to be quite good and um, I suppose the, the idea would be to harmonize that a little bit more and to I would say reduce uh, the gap between AFMD and usage. First bucket as I said delegation and reporting in fact authorization as well because at the time of, of authorization the alternative investment fund managers at the AFMs will, will have to provide you know, additional information uh, when they actually apply for authorization. Uh, it's obviously currently already the case. You have to come up with a business plan or different things. Uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit reinforced. You know, the, the sort of application files are going to be a little bit sort of uh, uh, more complex than, than than they used to be, especially when it comes to substance. You know, a lot of our clients ask us about, you know, what kind of substance do I need to have? You know, who need to do what, et cetera. There's going to be likely a little bit more scrutiny on this, like, you know, who's doing what, who are the senior officials, as in like, you know, who, who sits on the board uh, and especially making sure that people that are supposed to be full-time employees or uh, executive members of the government body actually effectively fulfill that role. So there's going to be enhanced scrutiny on that front. I was talking about delegation earlier in a sense that the um, final text puts a lot of emphasis on, on you know, delegation or sub-delegation arrangements, meaning that obviously the AFM will have to provide additional information to their regulators on this. I, I would break this down into three different things. So the first one is obviously that there's going to be enhanced information on the delegates or sub-delegates provide. Secondly, and that's kind of a new thing, uh, quantitative information. So such as, for example, reporting on the on the assets of the age that they manage that are subject to delegation. Thirdly, you know, having to justify this delegation structure based on objective reasons. That's going to be quite interesting, especially the second aspect. We, we don't know that yet in detail because uh, as often there's going to be some regulatory technical standards or so RTS going to be published by ESMA along the way, um, but likely, you know, some, some information will have to, to be provided on a periodic basis. I mean, I expect that's probably going to be annually, um, you know, towards your regulator, uh, and that's obviously an additional burden. It's not necessarily something extremely complex, but it's just basically more, more information to provide. That could be, in my view, quite challenging for the so-called sort of like third-party AFM or third-party management model, whereby, you know, you basically delegate to a number of different investment managers and act as a, as a service provider, specialized in providing AFM services. It's just going to add up to their sort of uh, ongoing compliance efforts. As I said, you know, those delegation and slash reporting efforts is really something that is uh, not entirely new to the extent Mustor already provides some information on this, but it's going to be uh, certainly um, scrutinized and, and sort of enhanced in the future. 
The second sort of uh, bucket that I was uh, referring to at the beginning is the liquidity management tools, sometimes referred to as LMTs. So obviously, liquidity risk in general, uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners will, will be aware of that, is a very trendy topic. It just really is. I mean, just how do you manage liquidity? How do you manage liquidity risk uh, when obviously markets are, are very difficult and or especially in the case of large redemptions, for example, you know, what can you do to, to, to ensure the stability of your portfolio? Also ensuring, obviously, that you treat all your investors fairly, uh, you know, what, 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 you know, what's in there for, for, for them in the toolbox to, to, to make sure that, that, uh, effectively you, there's, there's not too much uh, disruption to, to your portfolio. And uh, obviously, there's already a lot of asset measures that use LMT. You know, it's not something necessarily new, but there wasn't much uh, harmonization on this. I mean, you know, we were seeing a little bit of everything on the market. You know, some managers being already great about that. You know, I mean, options available, uh, others being a bit, you know, too weak on that front. And I think the idea here is just to make sure that the sort of retail markets when it comes to usage, but in this case, also a sort of professional market when it comes to apes, making sure that investors are protected, you know, if there are some large redemptions or market events that makes it quite, you know, quite challenging to, to maintain the, uh, the stability of the portfolio. Really, the idea is, is that going forward, the apes and Will have to, so that they, they, you know, there will be an obligation to implement procedures for activating or deactivating any LMTs. Um, and they will have to put some operational and uh, admin arrangement to, for, for using these, these LMTs. And, and it's quite interesting, really, because, uh, as I said, it was, it was very sort of unharmonized by my say so, so far. Uh, the idea is, is really here to get AFIMs to select at least two LMTs from a list of LMTs, which is set some, somewhere in an annex in the text for those who want to go and see. And, and you can choose from that, but you will have to put some of these in place. These LMTs, if I can, you know, quote a few or cite a few, would be, for example, you know, swing pricing, uh, which is a famous one, or uh, redemption in specie, for example. Well, as gates, you know, there's, there's really a different things that are, that, 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 that can be used. Anti-division levy, you know, it's not a limited list. There's an annex in the text that I'm sure listeners can go and see. But, you know, it, it's quite a diversified sort of uh, panel of, of options that you have there uh, to manage liquidity. Um, and, and it's going to be a very, very important subject. So really, I see that as being, and it's, it's top view at eye level, we see that as being, you know, a, a, one of the very important buckets of new rules that, that comes in with, with that text. And again, interestingly, um, you know, ESMA will also develop some RTS guidelines in, in, in the coming future uh, to, to, around these particular LMTs and how they're supposed to be implemented. So we're going to follow that extremely closely. Um, and of course, we haven't waited for that to advise clients, you know, on LMTs. We regularly have uh, clients who are asking us to advise as to how they, they should uh, write their uh, issuing documents, for example, you know, prospectuses aligned with the way that their portfolio manager applies these sort of techniques. So it's it's something which, you know, which is very interesting actually to work on and to engage with, with portfolio managers about because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really the, the idea here is, is that at the same time you manage the uh, stability of your portfolio and, you know, the interest uh, of, of investors. It's a very key topic, which to me is going to just basically uh, grow in importance uh, over the next couple of years. I was talking earlier as well about the loan originating funds, maybe the third thing that I wanted to highlight. Uh, obviously, you know, again, the, 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 the idea here is to really enshrine uh, the fact that 
uh, yes, AIFs can originate loans. Uh, and the FRT is really to harmonize the different national regimes because uh, loan origin funds are not a new thing. You know, this is that yeah, it's been in existence in two countries for a while. If I, I'm just thinking about Ireland in particular, and it's been there in a while. So it's, it's nothing new, but really the, the you know, the, again, the idea here is, is about harmonization. There, there was nothing really consistent uh, across the EU and, uh, you know, creating basically a, a very sort of like uneven uh, situation across the EU for these types of products. I, I, I might just uh, just say what a loan origin fund is. I mean, actually, even the definition in the text is, is quite interesting. It's, it's just basically any AIF whose investment strategy is, is, is to originate loans. <laughs> Or where the notional value of the AIFs uh, originated loans represent at least fifty percent of the NAV uh, of the net asset value. So it's quite just quite simplified. Uh, I won't go into the, the details of the, the different rules of uh, you know what these funds are meant to apply. But for example, there's rules on on the leverage limits, uh, you know, which is at three hundred percent for close-ended AIFs and uh, one hundred and seventy-five percent for open-ended AIFs, for example. Another subject might be borrowing limits. For example, you know, loan construction limit to a single borrower is 20%, for example, on AIFS capital, uh, et cetera, and so on and so forth. So the, the, there will be a number of rules like this, quite technical, but um, mostly on the diversification, risk, you know, borrowing, leverage, uh, et cetera, to make sure that uh, there's a minimum set of rules for these type of funds. There's obviously... Ancillary activities for, you know, for, for AFIBs and macro, for example, RTO, which is reception interest management orders is, is, is going to, to, uh, to exist for usage mancos. That was previously actually only for AFIM. They're going to harmonize that. And, uh, AFIM will be able in the future to provide administration of benchmarks. For example, our credit servicing functions that, that's, you know, these sort of things, which are again, ancillary things that are added to the, to the text, uh, which I believe could be quite interesting. Another aspect is fees and costs. So I won't delve too much into the details of this because there's obviously also a broader effort at EU level to, to harmonize sort of like fees and costs and avoid undue costs. You know, again, our, our listeners may have heard about the uh, retail investment strategy, which is obviously more focused on retail. So only for, for the purpose of today's discussions, you know, relevant for retail age, but it's, it's, it's still, you know, another very, very big subject at EU level. Uh, to make sure that effectively fees charged by asset measures can be always justified and make sense in the broader context of their specific products. Uh, so it's something that will have to be monitored also pretty pretty closely. I'll stop there now because obviously I could speak about this subject for a very long time and I'm very passionate about this, but I, I just wanted to highlight those for today uh, because I, I, I think our listeners should be aware of, of, of these ones, uh, which to me at least are of most relevance uh, at that point in time. Thank you so much, Martin. And uh, obviously, I didn't give you an easy question there to try and summarize, you know, this big change that's coming down the line, but I think you've done a great job. Just following up on what you've said, uh, you know, what are sort of the practical implications for EU managers, but also non-EU managers, because AFMD obviously is, is something that impacts not only EU managers, but also foreign managers trying to market their funds in Europe. Any practical implications for both these sets of clients that we have? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll start with the non-EU AFMs, which are going to, for some topic, are going to be directly or indirectly impacted. For example, I was talking about liquidity risk management. There's going to be some new pre-contractual disclosures, for example, to, uh, to investors about uh, the, the, the relevant ACE liquidity risk management framework. That's something which are, is going also to be relevant to um, 
a non-EU AFM, which markets a fund of EU, or even for that matter, uh, EU AFMs, uh, which manages a, a non-EU AF into Europe. So this is a sort of like impact that uh, that non-EU uh, AFMs, for example, US uh, hedge fund managers may expect when they register their, their fund through NPPR, for example, in, in, in Europe. Um, and obviously, I was talking as well about delegation. So not strictly speaking, non-EU AFMs, in the sense that you know those managers are mostly acting as a delegate of the EU uh, AFM, but still it's 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 a, it's a very sort of similar impact on them in the sense that they they are in charge of discretionary portfolio management as a delegation a AFM and they can expect you know some enhanced requirement or at least to have to provide more information, including periodic information to their EU AFM and in turn to the to the regulator, uh, for example in Luxembourg or in Ireland. So it's going to be quite quite far reaching uh, in general, but uh, also as I just demonstrated on the non-EU uh, AFMs. Uh, as far as the EU AFMs are, are concerned now, as I just mentioned, I mean, it, it's 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 quite quite broad. Uh, it really depends where they stand currently on these different subjects. There's always a sort of like, uh, you know, good students and, and bad students. I mean, some of them might, might actually already be very advanced in um, their liquidity risk management tools, for example, or delegation arrangement. They, they may have some very robust ar arrangements. Other may not be that advanced, so they, they, they might have to catch up a little bit, I would say. Another distinction that I was making earlier is the, uh, uh, the distinction between sort of like AFM within a group, so fully fledged sort of like AFMs that belong to, to their own group and owned by, by, by the manager versus uh, the so-called so third-party AFM uh, model. Um, which sometimes have a portfolio of pretty hefty portfolio of clients, you know, investment managers everywhere across the Europe and US and beyond. So those ones, depending on, again, the level of readiness, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, may have to, uh, to catch up a little bit on their procedure uh, yeah. and on, on um, the way they document these particular aspects. Uh, so it's going to be quite interesting to observe. Thanks, Valentin. And just because I'm based in London, I always have to bring a sort of UK perspective to most discussions. So I recently read that the FCA is looking at performing a review of UK AIFMD uh, next year. So can you give us a flavor for how aligned or perhaps not aligned uh, the proposals from the FCA are compared to what's being introduced via AFMD2 in the EU? Yeah, so thanks for that question. Actually, very good question. So what, what we've seen so far is is obviously that the, the FCA is not looking to to do you know a full destruction, I would say, of of the sort of EU HMD level that was obviously incorporated into our uh, UK legislation. We see that the FCA basically proposes to retain the core of the EU's HMD, but they are going to reform it at the margins, I would say, to make it more proportionate for in-scope firms. So effectively, what we're seeing here the, a lot when we see, for example, keynote speeches from SEA personnel or other taxes is really the word proportionality comes back very often in a sense that they are looking to uh, make it a little bit more flexible depending on, on, on the profile of each firm. What they effectively expected to do is, on one hand, they'll they introduce a set of consistent rules that going to apply across all the categories of AFM. But then they're going to change a few things because what we have seen is that the FCA uh, does not really like the current distinction between sub-thresholds over thresholds AFM. They just feel that it's it's not being efficient and they, they're just not happy with it quite clearly. So instead, the FCA wants a more nuanced and gradual application of the rules, which is proportionate in nature and in scale of, of the firm's business. You know, it, 
it's why I was kind of referring to the term proportionality. I think that they're, they're going to very significantly alter on these particular uh, aspects of, of, of the uh, of the framework. That doesn't mean again that there's going to be a, a full blast and you, you full change of, of the rules. But but quite clearly, uh, unsurprisingly, I would say from from the FCA, from 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 the UK government as well, they want to make it you know more flexible, more proportionate to the different sizes of managers that you can see in, in the UK, which to some extent you know could make sense it obviously depends on, on the final rules another thing is that there could be a possible repeal of the rule that prevents AFMs uh, uh, from carrying out other activities uh, through the same legal entity and there's also a possible easing of some of the um, current reporting requirements under AFMV um, you know they might make that a little bit less difficult uh, than it is currently uh, in the EU. So that's the thing that we've seen so far. Uh, it's obviously not, you know, as 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 far advanced as it may be in the EU. And, you know, I think we are going to have to observe the next couple of years a little bit. I'd say to summarize that it's, uh, yes, they're going to, you know, to amend the regime. Uh, they're going to make it a little bit more um, fully domestic sort of UK specific regime. But we expect that the bulk of, of the actual rules are going to remain on either the same or very similar, uh, other than these these rules about reporting, proportionality, uh, you know, and, and flexibility of doing other activities via the AFM. Well, that's great to hear. And it seems like it's not a full overhaul in the UK, but rather maybe a mini sort of uh, update to some aspects of the rules. Going into uh, very practically, I know you've sort of had a lot of internal roles at asset management firms and say, let's maybe very, if you could wear that hat for a moment and just think if you were in the position and you had to implement AIFMD 2.0, how would you approach that? And what would you, what would your advice be to anyone that has to deal with this at their respective firm? Very good question. I would, I mean, again, it really depends on which model working with, I mean, if you, um, for example, if managers would be working at the AFM itself or are acting as a delegate of an AFM, you know, that, that's, um, that, that's obviously a, a different strategy. But if the latter, because that's, that's the, um, the most situation we see with our clients, then I would firstly would advise engaging with your AFM and the service providers such as the admin and depository early on in the process and perhaps also making a working group, for example, that regularly meets to discuss this. It's the best way of just basically uh, sharing information, you know, gradually improving if if any improvements need to be made, but at least making a gap analysis, you know, what is the current status and what's what is expected from from the new directive? You know, do, do we have any gaps? And, you know, collaboration is always key. You know, don't, I would just advise our client, don't stay isolated, don't stay in your corner and just, you know, engage with your IFM, engage with your service providers early on. Maybe put a regular call, you know, um, a working group uh, to share all the information. Um, engage with our lawyers as well. We're here for that, of course, advice. But uh, generally, I would just say that uh, collaboration with the external world would be key. And, Pretty much the same thing could apply to your internal model, uh, because, um, as I said, there's going to be a, an increased collaboration between the portfolio management side and the risk management side, uh, in the context of liquidity risk management, for example, and reporting. Uh, so I just, um, you know, encourage your clients to effectively just, uh, again, perhaps, uh, send, uh, you know, set up a recurring working group internally to discuss these different aspects uh, and 
in any case, uh, perform a gap analysis of, of, of their current policies and current uh, procedures versus what is expected from the finance sector. It's not available, so it's really something that that is is quite you know it's quite concrete. I mean, you you, you can read it and you can see what's there. Even though I appreciate you know the regulatory uh, technical standards is not there yet, and there's going to be more uh, to to come. But the work can start already and should start, you know, uh, at least looking at the general principle and see where there could be some, uh, uh, you know, some improvement required. Now, obviously, if you are a firm that manages also loan originating aid, then of course it's even more concrete for, for you because you have some very specific rules about your borrowings and leverage, et cetera, and you should need to prepare for that. But that's, I say, a pretty, pretty niche market. So it's not going to impact a lot of the clients. What will impact a lot of finance is really what I've said about delegation, you know, reporting, liquidity risk management, to some extent also perhaps fees and costs. Don't wait for the RTS, you know, start looking into this, start uh, gap analyzing, effectively work with, you know, the, the different subjects so you can get uh, ahead of the game, effectively be preparing in advance. Because as everyone will agree, even though we expect it's going to take at least about Two years for, for, for member states to implement the directive, you know, that time actually elapses very quickly and, um, it's always best to be prepared. I think that all makes a lot of sense, Valentin. So at this stage, I'd just like to thank you for your time and for sharing your insights. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Kuna, for having me. You reached the end of another episode of the Legal Zeitgeist podcast. Connect with us at zeidler.group to subscribe. Thank you for listening. The Legal Zeitgeist podcast is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. Professional legal advice should be obtained before taking or refraining from any action as a result of the contents of this podcast. All rights reserved.